Welcome to Canaan Bound Podcast, episode number 47. I'm Tom Barthel. Glad to be serving as your host for this episode. Today we'll begin with God's Word for You, shared by Pastor Timothy Smith. God's Word for You, Job 14, verses 13 to 22. These verses conclude Job's reply to his friends and bring the first round of questions to an end. We passed over Job's references to the renewal that comes to a tree when it's cut down. There, Job observed that even a tree can sprout again, but now he compares the life of a man who has been cut down in death. 13 and 14. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set me at time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. Verse 14 once again shows Job's faith in something that follows death. He uses the word renewal. And it's the same word, halaf, that he used for a tree sprouting earlier in verse 7. Job knew that something awaits us on the last day. Now the author of the book, whether he lived in Job's time or centuries later, did not hesitate to show Job's faith in these words, however poetically they might be presented. But God will remember us. Remember me was the dying prayer of the thief on the cross. It was the final prayer of the blinded Samson. It was the repentant prayer of David in Psalm 25. It was the constant prayer of Nehemiah as he struggled to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. Remember me. It was even the final sentence in Nehemiah's book. God will remember us. Verses 15 to 17. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. Hmm. Don't remember my sins. This is our constant prayer. Zophar had said this already. God has even forgotten some of your sins. Now Job says it as a prayer. The prophet Jeremiah got to hear God declared this very thing, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now that's in Jeremiah's, I think his greatest chapter, Jeremiah 31, and that comes up in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. When God forgave us, he didn't ignore our sins. He didn't change the rules about sin and punishment. He didn't overlook our guilt. Instead, he punished someone else in our place. He punished his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the blame for us. Jesus let himself be put to death for us. Now we can think of our sins, as Job did, as being sealed up like garbage in a bag and buried or covered over somewhere. But only if we imagine that the garbage bag of our sins is long since disintegrated and turned to mulch. Our sins will never be dug up again. They will never be an archaeological discovery. They will never be unearthed. They are gone because they're paid for. Like a paid bill, they are a thing of the past. Let's read to the end of the chapter. But as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy man's hope. You overpower him once for all, and he's gone. 
You change his countenance and send him away. If his sons are honored, he doesn't know it. If they are brought low, he doesn't see it. He feels the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. Don't be too concerned that the chapter seems to end on such a sour note. Remember that in Hebrew poetry, the main point is usually, remember, in the middle. And Job has shown us that his hope is in the resurrection and in eternal life. He has his ups and his downs. He is a sinful man with pain and trouble in his life. And just as most of us would do, Job ends his thoughts you know, here with something about himself. The pain of his body, mourning for what had happened to him. Job grieves that in the grave a man's body has no memory at all. His memories are all he has left of his children, but in the grave his body will not even have that. After death, the things that have made up his life are are washed away as if by a torrent. But we have a Savior who has not forgotten about us. Our saving God will not leave us, abandoning us to the grave, just as God the Father did not abandon his Son to the grave. Through Jesus, we have the promise of the resurrection and the promise of eternal life. One more thing. The torrents in verse 19 are waters that are um, shataf, overflowing. It's a word that can describe the surge of an army, like the Assyrian army swirling over Judah in Isaiah 8, or a flooding river in Psalm 69, water used to rinse the hands in Leviticus 15, or rinse the dishes later in Leviticus 15, or of a downpouring rain in Ezekiel 13, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall. Here, Job uses the picture of running water like the overflow of a river, and perhaps... This is another warning of the storm approaching in the distance. If so, then once again it is with irony, since the very idea of having his hope washed away is the opposite of what the torrential storm will do. God will restore Job's hope with this water. God will put God's con- Job's contrition in its proper framework with this storm. God will re- restore Job's life and health with a washing of renewal. He will repair Job's marriage and rebuild his family once again. How much does does God wash away and renew with this, this coming storm, this coming watershed? For Job, it will be a storm. For you and me, of course, I know your thoughts on our baptism and on the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's word for you. This is a song by Chris Dreisbach called Heart of Stone.
got a heart of stone Do you try God will give you a new heart, not a heart of stone. And Jesus would have died for you alone to change your heart of stone. And He will turn the rock to flesh, He'll change your heart of stone. got a heart of stone You know Every sinner needs a new heart Not a heart of stone But Jesus can turn the rock to flesh He'll change your heart of stone You know He would have died for you alone To save Moment with the Master is shared by Pastor Aaron Nitz. Greetings once again. Our uh, devotion this morning is based on the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 12, which reads, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. If only I had, I wish I had, life would be so much better if, I would be happier if. How many times have we thought or said things similar to those? You know, it's so natural for us to be discontent with what we have or how our lives are going. Why? Because discontentment oozes from the sinful nature that lives inside of each of us. But need we be discontent? What does God promise us? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
You know, if we have God, the Almighty One who loves us dearly as our Savior, and indeed we do, then we have all we need for this life and for the next. Thankfully, recognizing God's gracious gifts is the key to contentment. I'm treasuring true wealth from the Lord. So are you. May the Lord richly bless your day in Him. Next we have Freedom in Christ, shared by Pastor Mark Falk. Galatians 3, 13-14 He became a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. NIV 1984 Whistling past the graveyard. That is what many moderns are doing when they claim to be unafraid of God and His judgment. As one of my sainted seminary professors once told a self-confident college student, you ought to be afraid of God. To be cursed by God is to depart into a dark world of fire and punishment, gnashing in teeth, and worst of all, the absence of the God of love. God does not comfort and is not present with sinners he is consigned to hell, except to uphold the conditions of their punishment. So if the threat of being cursed by God at the last day moves sinners to shuddering and dread, then the words of these two verses must be the greatest possible comfort. But how can this be? How can God the Son fall under the curse of God? The spiritual meaning of the cross comes through clearly. The man hanging there has fallen under the curse not just of men, but of God. When we hear Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear him verbalizing this fact. He has willingly taken our sin, in a sense, as his own possession. In the Father's eyes, Jesus has become David inviting Bathsheba to the palace, Judas selling him out for 30 pieces of silver, Peter cursing and denying him, the tax collector who has spent a lifetime defrauding his fellow Jews, and each one of us at our very worst moments. He has been made sin. He has become a curse. It is hard to imagine the weight of this moment. I do not care to relieve it in hell, nor do you, and we need not. Because Jesus became sin and became a curse, because he took our place as a sacrifice for sin, we receive the ancient blessing promised to Abraham. I wonder how the father of the faithful felt when he was told that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, that is, through his seed, Jesus. Perhaps the thought was too big for him. Perhaps he could not fully wrap his mind around it, even as Christians often find it hard to wrap their mind around a God who becomes a curse under his own law, as Jesus did. Jesus is cursed. We are blessed. And we have done nothing, nor need we do anything to earn this blessing. It comes gift-wrapped as a gift of God. The Spirit gives us faith through the Word. The Spirit validates His own promise in our hearts. It all depends on God, and therefore the blessing is sure. 
But for all this to be true, Jesus had to become a curse. Can we ever thank him enough? Is any sacrifice of ours sufficient thanks? We'll conclude today with a song by Koine, Calm Your Hearts and Voices Raising. praising loudly sing his love amazing worthy folk of christendom see how god for us providing gave his son and life of
You've been listening to Canaanbound Podcast, episode number 47. This podcast was first shared in November of 2013. For this episode, we'd like to thank Koine for allowing us to share their music, as well as Chris Dreisbach. For information on these artists, visit CanaanBoundPodcast.com and find links to their websites. If you're looking for an edifying and spiritually encouraging Christmas gift, we encourage you to consider one of the Christmas albums by one of the artists featured on our podcast, such as the one by Koine. Today we heard their song, Come Your Hearts and Voices Raising, from the album Emmanuel Lux. Once again, my name is Tom Barthel. Glad to be your host for this episode. We encourage you to visit a Wells Ministry location nearest you. Visit wells.net. Thanks for listening. Come your hearts and voices raising, Christ the Lord with gladness praising. Loudly sing his love amazing, worthy folk of Christendom.